Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Finneran's Wake. I had the great privilege of interviewing Jill Nagel, a coach, counselor, and trainer to those of us seeking guidance through the dense and difficult and, in some cases, forbidding terrain of anti-racism. In order to better facilitate our navigation through this complex and, in many ways, uncharted field, Miss Nagel created a consulting company, Evolutionary Workplace, whose stated aim and motivating principle is to dismantle white supremacy, or, perhaps more exactly, white supremacy mythology. According to her company's website, to which I'll include a link in this episode's description below, her, quote, multidimensional approach to this subject draws on the, I'm sorry, draws on and synthesizes cognitive, emotional, somatic, interpersonal, and energy-based methods, end quote. I was particularly interested in the third and fifth of these approaches, somatic and energy-based on which we touch toward the end of this conversation. That Miss Nagel and I came into an awareness of each other was somewhat uh, unexpected. I wrote and recorded a brief book review of Ibram X. Kendi's wildly successful How to Be an Anti-Racist and Robin D'Angelo's equally influential and profitable White Fragility, to which I warmly encourage you to go back and listen if you have the time. Now, to put it lightly, I was deeply unimpressed by the quality of these two celebrated authors' works, upon which and whom every literary honor and academic approbation was and continues to be bestowed. In brief, I found their arguments feeble and unconvincing, their writing tedious and inelegant, their logic tautological, their definitions devoid of sense, their general view of race inimical to that of which, say, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was so staunch an expositor, and their policy recommendations, insofar as they were articulated, impracticable. This I think, positioned me, yours truly, as a most suitable person to have a talk with Miss Nagel, from whom I'm happy to say I learned a great deal, and I think you will too. In essence, I'd say my opinions about the philosophy of anti-racism and its exponents are overall unchanged, but I see the sincerity and goodwill with which its tenets, at least by some, are being brought before the public. And with those prefatory remarks with which, should they be extended any further, I'm fearful I'd bore you, I stand aside and give you my conversation with Jill Nagel. Hello, everyone. I'm visited by Jill Nagel, uh, who is an anti-racist leadership coach operating out of sunny Oakland, California. She works for a company called Evolutionary Workplace, um, for which I'll leave a link, for whose site I'll leave a link in uh, the description accompanying this website. Uh, so, of course, hello, Jill. Uh, a great pleasure. Hi to be able to speak with you today. And uh, um, more than that, it's an it's an honor <laughs> for which I'm Thank very you. grateful. Likewise. Um, so I, I take it based on your, uh, on your website that you're something of an expert in the field of anti-racism. Well, I can see why you would think that. I, um, I sort of uh, cringe at the idea because as a white person, I, I always feel like I'm 
just beginning to understand the enormity of it. That said, I do choose to focus a lot of my time and energy learning about the topic, engaging other people, and mm. um, trying to create a white anti-racist culture. There's a wonderful author of African descent named Resma Menikum, and I read his book, My Grandmother's Hands, and he recently just came out with another one called The Quaking of America. But in it, he calls for white people to create anti-racist white culture. And that's something I've been moving towards anyway. But when I read that, I thought, gosh, it's really time to do this. Um, and I, I interviewed some white people who were in the field who were older, much older in some cases than I am, and um, about what they were doing and how they came to focus you know, and what they chose to focus on in their life. In a lot of cases, it was dismantling racism and dismantling white supremacy. Because I think it's important that we as white people have models for how to go about this. Because a lot of us are confused and we're fumbling around and we, it's hard to get past, but, but, but I'm a good person, but I'm not a racist. Why, why is there all of this hullabaloo and finger pointing? And, you know, it's a very good question. Um, and so there are places to go from that place. Mm. And there are steps to take and um, a lot of work to be done. And actually, I think fun to be had because as we come to discover, you know, how we too have been brainwashed <clears throat> and our brains have been hijacked by white supremacy mythology, there's, there's relief <laughs> as part of the light at the end of the tunnel. And there's, um, there's the pleasure in, in learning what actually happened, even though some of it a lot of it is just so horrific uh, to actually get a sense. I, I feel a sense of relief when I hear the truth. I don't know about you, but there's something that happens in my body when I get to know the truth, you know. Oh, oh indubitably, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and that's something, I'll just make a few notes. That's something um, about which you seem to be emphatic, which is very interesting that somatic response. Now, I'm assuming at this point, just having been introduced, uh, some of the listeners haven't yet visited your website, but that's something of which you make repeated mention, that that bodily mm -hmm. response, that somatic response. So I find that very interesting. And I, that's something on which maybe later in the conversation, you can dilate and expand. Um, sure. But also your, your approach seems to focus in, in, I think, a salutary way on the joy that can be derived from this practice. I think people hear the term anti-racist and it's a term around which there are a lot of mixed emotions, uh, of course, mm -hmm. and about which I think for that reason, um, people are very curious to learn, but I don't think they automatically associate it with that lightness of touch and that <laughs> joyfulness yes <laughs> uh, with which you seem to approach it not having taken any of your courses or or um you know listen to any of your podcasts beyond your your uh, trailer with your with your compatriot mm -hmm. of whom i'll make mention a little bit later um so so yeah i think that's that's an interesting approach and probably a good one for what is a controversial uh, subject to put it to put it very mildly in politically speaking, of course. So yeah, and go ahead. No, no, please, please. Tell me your question. You're, you're going to say something else, I think. No, no, you go right ahead. Well, uh, one of the ways I like to talk about racism or white supremacy mythology, and you know, before we go on, I want to be clear that when I say white supremacy mythology, I don't mean that all of the things done in the name of white supremacy haven't been done. I'm not denying that. What I mean is that the theory on which it's based is untrue. White people are not superior to anyone in any way, shape, or form. So this is this is almost, I'll interrupt because this is almost precisely uh, the idea with which I wanted to begin. And that is uh -huh. a simple definition of terms. I think mm -hmm. that would be worthwhile before discussing, you know, sort of the more complex features of anti-racism and its uh, practicability, um, its political implications, all those other things that attend to it. 
maybe you could go through with, I know you, you'll reject the idea that you're an expert, but you're certainly more expert than I. So maybe you can go through with your more experienced lens uh, and your more experienced voice and, and tell us the definitions of some some terms that have become tendentious as of late, terms like simply racism or mm-hmm. anti-racism, um, white supremacy, as you said, mm-hmm. with or without its mythological tinge, and then white privilege, maybe, or maybe mm-hmm. just the whatever, two or three definitions that you think most relevant and important for the uh, unacquainted to know. Sure. Well, why don't we start with, with white supremacy mythology, since that's where I left off. First off, I should, I want, I will say <laughs> that I am indebted to Cleo Minago, my business partner and longtime dear, dear friend and mentor mm. for introducing me to this term. And it is from him that I've learned the most about and continue to learn the most about all of this because his views are so, um, I'm going to use the word radical, and I think that has kind of a reputation of being um, sort of out of control and irrational and demanding. But what I mean by radical is the original um, meaning of the word or the, the, the root of radical actually means root. Precisely. And, and Cleo gets to the root of things by exposing the truth. And as I mentioned earlier, I have quite an affinity for the truth. And I remember the first time I met him, it was... It was like this, this, um, this veil had been lifted over the everyday in terms of the sort of artifacts. And it was like a Damascene moment. You were, you were like St. Paul on his, on his donkey. Exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only yours wasn't, uh, hopefully Without a saddle. wasn't an epileptic, uh, event. It was not, it was um, we became, one. yeah, so we, we, yeah, we talked for three hours the first night that we met and wow. I found out you know, that he had coined the term same gender loving for homosexual black men and women. I'm sorry, same gender loving? Yeah, as opposed to say gay, which is Mm. a white Eurocentric term coined by light-skinned people of European descent. Mm. And I I found out, you know, what white supremacy was. And And really, it's this... And would none of the words same gender and loving be uh, fundamentally rooted, etymologically rooted in uh, European languages? Like no, gay- no, he was saying he, um, he, he, he coined the phrase same gender loving as an alternative for people of African descent to describe their homosexual orientation because gay came out of white, i.e. Eurocentric homosexual community. I see. So it's not necessarily the words, but their uh, connotation, because the you know, culture, like... the culture around it. Like, um, he talks about going into a gay center and finding white images, white music, white people. Mm. Nobody, you know, nobody had any um, information or um, sensitivity or attunement to um, the cultural relevance. I that see people of African descent would want or need. Um, so that was one of the things that he opened my eyes to. And the, uh, another was was white supremacy, the, the untrue notion or belief that people of European descent, light-skinned people of European descent, like me and I guess you from your picture, or people who are mistaken for them even, um, represent sort of the apex of all that is good and worthwhile, meritorious, trustworthy, beautiful, able, capable, all of that, you know, and, and until very recently, we saw few, if any, superheroes other than white, um, most models, most um, movie stars, and so on, um, have all been of European descent, light-skinned people of European descent, i.e. white. Mm. And it's easy to not notice that, it's, you know, because we grew up and we but think it, it's also, normal. yeah, and, the, and I, I take I take that point and um, I accept the fact that through most of America's cultural history, that has been true. Uh, But at least for the past, let's say, decade, I think that paradigm has changed drastically. 
like if you were to look at the like the most let's say bankable hollywood stars as of late or prior to the oscars of this past year uh, will smith would probably be atop that list right well denzel washington figures like that uh, are are absolute stars and rightfully so because of their abilities well to put uh, people in their chairs to bring them to the theaters at a time when theaters are open. Yeah. Um, a so lot of times, the, mm -hmm. the, a lot of the times the cost for a person of African descent to ascend to a place of sort of broad cultural relevance is to, on some level, and sometimes in subtle and insidious ways, adopt and promulgate white supremacist norms. I don't want to get too deeply into that because that is not my main area of study. I want to leave that to Cleo. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, that, that's interesting that you say that. I'm just wondering now because I used to be, uh, I used to adore the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Just speaking of of uh, Will Smith. And mm -hmm. I think that was a particularly, uh, it's a particularly interesting example uh, about which perhaps uh, Cleo and I can talk <laughs> at some future date mm -hmm. uh, because I certainly don't think that was, knowingly deliberately adopting uh the tropes of a white culture yet it was i would think the most successful television program and the most beloved amongst people my age i'm i'm 30 years of age as of this year so you know, younger millennials i think would all agree that the fresh prince of bel-air was just probably the best show and one to which uh, they still return <laughs> watching mm -hmm. and rewatching its its rerun so that's an interesting point not one on which to get hung up um but but um but just one to ponder it's interesting that you mentioned that well let me say one more thing about that which is something that cleo has pointed out to me again and again which is that most times when you see a celebrity of african descent it's they're put in a position of of entertaining or buffoonery, but rarely do you see, for example, um, a black man who is dignified, taken seriously, mm. or do you see representations of serious, like a drama, like black on black love, like you don't have a black version of the Waltons, you know, or mm. um, other shows. And then when you do see that, and I am, I am seeing it more, but it's often tinged with some sort of backstory like when i watched um uh, what was it bridgerton a lot of people went wow it's so diverse well the black male lead has a white love interest um so again the lack the black and black love and yeah the I have to admit, I'm, un, I'm unfamiliar with the show is that it was is that the one that was set in victorian england i could be wrong is that bridgerton? yes and they yeah and they switched up a lot of white characters for black characters and many people applaud and say oh look diversity but yeah. again well, I mean, Cleo. if you're doing a period piece i mean not to get into the like cultural um uh, features uh, things to which we're exposed now uh and i'm not really familiar with bridgerton but if you're trying to capture a, a period piece it would be odd i think if you were in england to have you know all the colors of the rainbow <laughs> present well they did it they did it and they, they got applauded yeah, for quote yeah, I mean, unquote I suppose you, one has to uh, suspend his his disbelief. But again, if you're trying to be authentic, I, I don't know exactly how the, the film industry is, is managing that. And again, I'm unfamiliar with the show itself. Um, but uh, yeah, well, the, I mean, the, yeah. The point I was going to make there mm -hmm. is, and again, I critically, I was that um, many times people have a space or a group that is multi-ethnic but still remains monocultural. And by mm. that, I mean, you can look around and say, oh, look, there's a black person and a brown person. There's an Asian person. And there's a person of, you know, First Nations descent or right. something. And, but then everybody is speaking in the same waspy way and listening to the same white music, you know, during, in the break room. And um, well, the culture maybe, is white. Uh, and the price, again, of, I, the, perhaps. The and price of inclusion, mm -hmm. well, let, me, let me just finish my thought. The price of inclusion is often conformity. And granted, that's starting to get shaken up a little bit, but a lot of times white people will really defend their comfort zones. I mean, sometimes I go into a place and it's music I'm not familiar with. And there's some part of me that really wants the music that I'm familiar with, which is a normal human thing to want. And yet, if I think about it, I'm used to getting my way with the music. And so there's the, you're asking about white privilege. Um, 
part of white privilege is being able to walk around and be pretty sure that we're going to be surrounded with imagery and music and behavior that's within our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the thought that there's an expectation that we are exposed to a certain uh, musical genre is, is one against which I'd push back just very gently. Again, just taking the example of, let's say, top earning recording artists in America. I don't have the list in front of me, but I could venture a guest and it would probably be Kanye West at number one, maybe Lizzo at number two, uh, maybe Taylor Swift at number three. Uh, so the point is, I'm not sure there's, there's such a bias, um, perhaps as you, as you experience or as you imagine. Uh, I wasn't talking about bias within the music industry. I was talking about that as a white person, right, but, part of, mm -hmm. you would ask the definition of white privilege, and it's the expectation that I will be able to move through the world in ways that make me comfortable, in ways that are not dangerous or inconvenient to me. I see. I see. And that's the entire world or this country particularly? Talking about the U.S. I'm not, um, and, but it is also true in a lot of other countries as well. I, I can't speak to them Okay. With authority, because I haven't lived other places very much. Sure, sure. Neither have I. I was just trying to be more specific because uh, working off of definitions, you say in the in the world, I would imagine that your white privilege probably isn't too highly regarded in uh, some other places. I can imagine a few <laughs> North Korea well, wouldn't wouldn't. Right. Care. Yeah. We're not. We're just stick right. to the U.S. for this conversation, if you don't mind. But speaking of sure, sure. speaking of that. You know, I think I told you I grew up in, in Miami. Mm. Uh, I remember one time my dad was taking my sister and me on a fishing trip and we were going up into central Florida, which is a very different sort of culture oh, yes. mm. than say Miami. And he told us not, and I'm Jewish. And he told us not to use any Yiddish words because he said he was once up in this area and he sat down at a table in a restaurant and there was a little table tent a little card that said this is kkk country oh my goodness and it's my dad has you know or had dark hair mm. and olive skin and a prominent nose and dark mm. eyes mm. and you know my sister and i were lighter haired and could probably more easily pass for being you know anglo and so i could imagine you know my dad being one of five jewish families in mm. a small town in upstate New York and all that came with that in the thirties and forties sure. had some trepidation trepidation. He wanted to keep his daughter safe. So he said, don't use any Yiddish words. Understand. Like, don't, don't make our, don't make us look too Jewish. And so that was the one experience that I had, you know, so being Jewish is interesting because historically we've been targeted for not meeting Aryan or white supremacist standards. And yet here right. in the United right. States, we get white skin privilege. So, it's an interesting place to stand. Yes, yes, and I'm—I like to regard myself as an estranged son of Abraham. I—I I also am uh, am Jewish, so I—I—it uh, oh. I, I, seems as though you have a, a more extensive Yiddish vocabulary than I do. The fact that you had to suppress it <laughs> while—well, we just would say things That's like "oive." And... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, sure. I think sure. my dad was being overly cautious. It's not like we actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I let I let slip quite a few oives throughout the course of the day. I will admit. <laughs> Beyond that, though, my my Yiddish is limited to my to my grandmother and great grandmother's everlasting shame. <laughs> so, mm. um, so no, I I absolutely I I understand what you mean perfectly. Um, so, if you could, uh, just going back to some definitions, uh, would you be able to provide a definition of racism? Hmm. So it's interesting because uh, my understanding is that the dictionary definition has now changed, but and it used yes. to be defined as a particular act of prejudice against um, someone based on their perceived race. And we, we know that race is um, race is a social, not uh, a biologically based construct. There is no biological basis for race, but there is racism, which is based mm. on this false division. And now that the dictionaries change the definition of race to, to include systemic racism, uh, some people will say, well, 
you know, I'm white and I've had black people be racist against me. And I believe that what they mean is that black people have treated me in a certain way or been prejudiced against me because I'm white or been um, suspicious or have antipathy toward or anything based on race. I, I do think that that happens. I want to talk a little bit more about the context for that. Um, but there's the definition of racism, as I understood it, has been prejudice plus power. Meaning if I am white, you know, I have the power to call the police and chances are um, the police are going to come and believe me over the black person that I called the police on. And that's because of systemic white supremacy. Now, if a black person calls the police on me, they are statistically less likely to be believed, you know, to have somebody give them credence. So um, I understand what people mean when they say reverse racism, but it makes it sound like we're in a level playing field. You know, Daniel, it makes it sound like white supremacy mythology doesn't exist. And because it does exist, I think we need different words than, for example, reverse racism. Mm, I see. So it's, and I've heard this before, and this is in most of the literature, it's the, it's not only the, the detestation or the hatred for someone else for his or her, uh, well, the color of his or her skin or uh, perceived race, but it's the component of power mm -hmm. that defines racism in at least the, its modern sense. Yes. You would agree to that? I think so. Okay. And then anti-racism. Well, I think for me, that's a very important word. It says to me that somebody is aware of what's happening and wants to stop it because they see its harm and they want to work for a better world. That's put concisely and, and, and eloquently. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I try to use... I, I don't talk as much about, like, I certainly don't talk about someone being a racist very often, um, occasionally. Um, one of the reasons I like to talk about white supremacy mythology as opposed to racism is, to me, racism is a product of white supremacy mythology. And I'd rather talk about the roots. So do you think racism is non-existent but for white supremacy? Yeah, I think white supremacy mythology creates the conditions for racism and that if we didn't have white supremacy mythology, we wouldn't have racism, we wouldn't have race. So because white, white supremacy mythology created race, which created racism. So the fact that, for instance, for the, the fact that, let's say in China, uh, under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, there's a quite overt preference for lighter features and uh, for their actors and films, getting back to the cultural aspect of which you made uh, prior mention, are the, the Chinese, let's say audience, is the Chinese audience uh, not exhibiting or actually participating in racist behaviors by preferencing or preferring lighter skinned people? It sure sounds, yeah, it sure sounds like it to me. So, I mean, are they, I would, I would think we would agree that they are not white European peoples, correct? No, but um, for example, in, in the black community, there's a, a lot of hierarchy around skin tone and around hair, preferring lighter skin. And I would call that internalized white supremacy mythology. So the fact that the, the Chinese, let's say citizen, average Chinese citizen, who may be racist, let's say, is his racism the result of his uh, inhabiting uh, white supremacy? And it sounds like it to me. I mean, I don't, I'm not so familiar with Chinese culture and I, I didn't know about the skin color preference in China. Oh, sure. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I hesitate to make a pronouncement, but from what you say, it sounds like, like internalized white supremacy to me. Could it just be the fact that China has, well, let's, China is either co-eval or even precedes 
European civilization. It probably precedes European civilization by by quite a few millennia, actually. So I guess it's a it's a matter of as a question of uh, chronology. How how would the Chinese racism be the consequence of white supremacy? As I said, you know, I'm not really familiar with it, so I, I can't. Sure. Comment but, on but it could be applicable. It'd be interesting be, to ask somebody who knows sure, more sure, than sure. I do about it. Yeah. It could be applicable though to India. I mean, I it could be applicable really to any to any peoples or any nation that that exhibits a particular uh, dislike for those who are colored differently. Who's yeah, I mean, I saw a bill, and I was in India, and I saw a billboard for bleach cream. Oh, sure, sure. The lightning it was being marketed for women to put on their faces. It shocked me when I learned when I learned how lucrative that industry is, it absolutely shocked me. And it's something that's, I don't know, it almost seems as though it's, it's, it's deeply, it's a deeply held conviction, uh, so yeah. far as the aesthetic standards of certain peoples are concerned, that the lightening of the skin is something uh, for which uh, everyone has some kind of desire, which is, which is strange when you look at it across the globe. Uh, but I guess- And my especially point, when you, when you, like, can I just interject for course, a moment? Of course Especially when you hold it against all these white people going to tanning beds. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's very it's it is. It is very strange. It is very strange. You know, you could look at the French aristocrats and the philosophes from the, the 18th century, powdering their faces, wearing rouge on their lips and all these things. Uh, and today we have people spending inordinate amounts of money with tanning creams and tanning salons and sitting out in the sun all day. Uh, and then you go to a, an Asian culture where they're deliberately lightening the skin and mm -hmm. uh, frowning upon those who are who are of a darker hue or complexion. Yeah. So I guess my broader point, and we again, we don't have to fixate on it, but I think my broader point is that um, it seems peculiar to me that that racism could be the outgrowth of white supremacy when racism seems to precede white supremacy and perhaps animates a lot of different cultures, a lot of different races. So if that's the case, if white supremacy isn't the, the, the source um, out of which racism springs, then perhaps racism isn't a strictly white uh, affliction, problem, pathology. It, it may not be. Um, and I, I can't speak to the entire world for sure. Um, and at the same time, my interest is in the United States because I live in the United States and I'm daily sure. to the ravages that United States white supremacy mythology inflicts upon black and brown people and in a very different way and with very different results on white people as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important if, if my point is taken that if racism isn't strictly a consequence of white supremacy, then we might be able to attribute racism to individual behavior, individual uh, misbehavior, <laughs> if I could call it well, that. Well, you know, individuals all come out of contexts. Mm -hmm. No exceptions. I would agree. With that. So I, I'm interested in what gave rise, if we're looking at an individual behavior, I'm interested in what gave rise to that. Mm. Um, in the United States, I see... Um, all white people need to, all white people organize their psyches consciously or not along a kind of a continuum in response to white supremacy mythology um, with, and you can look around you and you can see examples of this. On one end, you have um, what I would call overt white supremacists who loudly and openly or not so openly, maybe they have a white hood over their heads, Mm. Pro proclaim that whites are the superior quote unquote race. Um, the, you see them on the, you know, in the January 6th insurrection, you can, there's white supremacist news groups and websites and paraphernalia online. I remember I went to order a t-shirt one time and in the catalog of the t-shirt company, I found a t-shirt that said 6MWE. I hadn't known about that. But what it means, have you heard of this? Uh, repeat it. I'm sorry. I, I think I caught what, six. Six MWE. It means six million wasn't enough. In other words, kill the rest oh, of the Jews. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Right. So, and then I went to a different t-shirt company and they were selling that same t-shirt too. And I was just aghast. I could, do they know what this is? Um, 
so you know, white supremacy is is alive and well. Um, and as I've mentioned, as I just mentioned in a different podcast, um, it, it's a strategy. I think it's a strategy of people who have been deeply traumatized to cling to this identity that 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 brings them some, albeit false, feeling of of superiority and certainly of, of belonging. Mm. And so then you go up the continuum and you have folks who wouldn't admit to that, wouldn't say that they think white people are superior, but they really wouldn't be happy if their daughter married a black man or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have folk, white folks who were raised not to talk about race because that was the problem. We're all one, we're all God's children. We don't see color. You know, in one of my workshops, um, there was a woman in her 70s who was looking at the materials I passed out where I discuss this. She said, this is verbatim what my family said to me. I mean, word for word, when I was growing up, we don't talk about (laughs) this is how we recreate the problem, that that sort of thing. Um, And then you have people who are aware of the problem. Maybe they even, they give you you money to- Do you not not think that's a somewhat ennobling uh, idea? Say more. Uh, the the idea that we are whether you accept the the reality or not of a of a divine being a creator do you think do you not think there's something ennobling and beautiful in that thought yes i do um and i think what i think the clarity that is needed around holding that sentiment is that without a knowledge and in a capacity, and I'll get back to the word capacity mode, without a knowledge and capacity to reckon with the actual racism, the white supremacy mythology, the history, the creation of race itself as an instrument of oppression and the effects over centuries of that oppression of people of African descent and people, First Nations people of indigenous descent, without that capacity, willingness to reckon with the oppression and the effects of the oppression um, that the we are all one can be used as a kind of spiritual bypassing of the vital reckoning that's needed. Hmm. No, I, I see, I see. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, that idea uh, properly applied could have salutary salutary effects, perhaps bypassing mm-hmm. in its own way um, what seems to be a greater uh, tendentiousness and perhaps stratification, but but perhaps not. So, so that was the penultimate step on the hierarchy. I think ah, there were two more. There was a couple more, maybe the anti-penultimate step. Ah, okay. Um, you're using some words that even I don't recognize, and I'm a word nerd. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, we'll borrow from each other. I'm learning from you just as much, I hope, that, oh. as you are from me. So the, the anti-penultimate step. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so after the we don't see color, we're all one, la, 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 I can't hear you talking about race, um, would be the kind of shaking off the haze of, wow, okay, I, I had no idea it was so bad here. Um Ooh, and kind of willing to take a look, but it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable because there's this sort of looming, creeping notion. Well, but 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 I'm a good person. What what does this mean about me? Because um, the way that I the way that I see it is is white supremacy mythology is a trauma that lives in black and white and brown and yellow bodies differently depending on our relationship to the history of it. Um, but it lives, it lives in our bodies and it braids with our own personal and familial trauma. So that we start pulling on one of those threads and saying, hey, hey look at this horrible thing. A lot of people are like, no, and mm-hmm. with good reason, they don't want to face the pain because it's not only the pain and the shame of, you know, a lot of our ancestors and um, our culture, but also it sometimes can feel indistinguishable from the pain or shame of whatever happened to us as children. Mm. 
So that's why a lot of the work that I do starts off very slowly with paying attention to what's happening in our bodies as we look at this stuff, slowing it down, being with it. In fact, I coined a term being withness. It's the words being and with, with the suffix ness, being withness. Brilliant. I like that. As the, yeah, the fundamental skill and practice that we bring to this work. No, not only this work, but with, I think with any practice, it sounds like mindfulness. It sounds like uh, a certain yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, so a certain mm-hmm. presence of mind, perhaps more applicable to your to your work, but 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 maybe more generalizable. I like that being withness. Yeah, I've had people come back to me and say, "Thank you so much for this work. I, it helped me talking to my teenage son." <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I came out of um, years of working with uh, somatic counseling. I developed an approach called Wisdom of the Body. And very much draw on all of that in this work. And that's why my the tagline for my business is dismantling white supremacy from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's so deeply entangled, let's say, in the in the white body, is it possible to ex to extirpate, to to uproot it? Uproot sounds pretty violent to me. Um well, we're talking about uh, rad- radicalism, right? And getting to the roots. Yes, get, but getting to the root of it, um, because it's tangled up in our tissues and our nerves and our blood and our bones and our eyes and our hearts and all that, um, being withness is a way of sort of surrounding that all of that with love and allowing it to untangle kind of in its own way. And this is a very slow process. I mean, Rez Momenicum in this book, My Grandmother's Hand, says take two years to read this book. Don't breeze through it in a weekend because it's so somatically based, because it involves slowing down, because it involves paying attention to all that arises within us. Hmm. Now, granted, hold that in one hand, if you will, and then the other hand say, but we need systemic change now, but Black brown bodies are being right right I've, I've been told there's a, i've been told there's a certain exigency with which we should be approaching this problem i two years seems to be a bit too long yeah so so both things are true and in this work there's a lot of paradox and one of the things that i find to be very true and very necessary is to remember that we are all in this together mm. meaning my cousin is off doing policy work Somebody else is starting an agency. Someone else is giving money to an organization. Sometimes these things overlap. And one of the things that's new to me is that a lot of what I think of as corporate culture or just how things are in the United States of America, like like urgency and privileging the written word, are also woven in with white supremacy. And so, yes, there's urgent work to be done. And when I bring an embattled and stressed and strung out body to doing that work, I'm bringing that quality to what I do. Mm. Granted, cash is cash. And I'll write a check even if I'm stressed and strung out Mm -hmm. for an organization I believe in. And they probably won't know that I was stressed and strung out when I did it. But if I want to make the change, if I want to make real change from the inside out and be able to have that talk with my uncle, to have that talk with my friend from high school, in a way that's truly transformative, I need to find a way to come into presence. And by coming into presence, I mean being in presence, being having access to a whole range of responses from a calm and grounded place as opposed to simply reacting. No, oh, yes, I couldn't agree with that more. I I I admire your integration of the somatic physical um mindful res- uh, aspect with the more intellectual one i think that's wonderful and i think that's novel uh, in your line of work with which i'm only well, just becoming familiar let me say that um thankfully it's not novel there's um, a oh. whole host of folks out there um resma menicum's work i believe is called somatic abolitionism Somatic um, abolitionism. Yeah, and there's some you folks. Like, <laughs> perhaps in a different conversation. You'll yeah, have or call. Yeah, that. have have him come on to your 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 show. He's awesome. And there's um some other folks doing something called holistic resistance, um, hmm. 
embodied anti-racism. If you Google some of this stuff, there's an awful lot of it going around, which makes me very happy. The fact that what I'm doing is is not novel because we need as much of it as we can get. Sure, sure. But um, I realize that it's novel to many and that it is an emerging area of practice and study. Oh, yes. And I count my myself among those to whom it is not, well, to whom it is emerging and novel and, and quite different. So when informed that I'd be talking with you today, a friend of mine who's of African and Asian extraction, um, he said the following, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that those who promote anti-racism, and he has a critical view of anti-racism, are something of an, an unsmiling, ungrateful bunch <laughs> for, whom, for whom the past is nothing but an endless catalog of mistakes, abuses, and unpardonable errors. And the future, <laughs> and the future no less bright, <laughs> one microaggression after another. Mm -hmm. So again, obviously, a critic of your work and the anti-racist agenda more broadly. But I thought mm -hmm. it would be interesting to pull in his perspective. Absolutely. And have you respond to it if you feel comfortable doing so. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in the habit of um, critiquing black and brown people and their responses to racism. But one of the things Cleo has said to me is there are black white supremacists. And my takeaway from that is that white supremacy mythology affects everyone. You remember, we got we got about three quarters or five, six of the way up the continuum of, you know, from the overt mm -hmm. of white of white supremacy mythology mindsets within white people, you know, from the overt uh, white supremacists to the person shaking off the haze and then somebody who's actively anti-racist, somebody like me, I, 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 I call me, I call myself and people like me a lifer, like people who feel like this is such a compelling issue mm. in our time, not, not to the exclusion of environmental issues or poverty or war, anything, like, but that they're all actually interconnected. Mm. Um, but somebody who feels like this issue is so compelling that we put it at the center of our lives. Mm. Now, the same thing is true for anyone around anything. Um, and I have seen you know, one, one of a lot of the white people I talk to, one of the favorite things to do when they want to skirt around or avoid somebody says, well, basically my black friend says I shouldn't worry about this or that you and people like you are, you know, the unsmiling, sort of like the, the, the ugly feminist or the, you know, the person who's being put down personally for caring so deeply about stopping a particular harm. Mm -hmm. To me, I, th I think that's a defense against, um, against facing the, the, the atrocities, you know, whose after effects we're trying to work with. Yeah, and I don't get the sense that you're an unsmiling, ungrateful person. Not in the no, least. No, I'm, I'm actually a big dork. <laughs> you seem, <laughs> uh, just based on the tone of your voice, you seem to be quite, quite happy and quite, uh, quite pleasant. Um, but I do think that whether it's there is truth to it or not, I, I think that is a common either conception or misconception. I, I do think there is perhaps an undue uh, criticism placed upon the, the past and maybe the sins of the past. And well, let me, I'm sorry, can I jump in there before I forget? <laughs> this is a casualty of, of, of being my age. We need to jump on it before I forget it. Um, <laughs> <But> all right. <laughs> the grain of truth in there, I think, is what we were talking about before around the, the, the somatic aspects of it is that we're, you know, we're conditioned to defend our goodness. And that often looks like getting into a fight with somebody, canceling somebody. And it's a strategy for not engaging with vulnerability. And I don't say that it's always appropriate to be vulnerable and try to make a heart connection with somebody. I don't think it is. Sometimes you need to elbow somebody who's trying to hurt you or mm. something like that. Yet, there's still this, this highly polarized mindset that has a snap to, you know, perpetrator victim, um, 
opponents in debate. You know, even like when my son was doing debate in high school, I'd go to see him. I thought, well, this is such a, like, to me, um, such a limited vehicle for, for transformative conversation. It's never about transformative conversation. It's about being right. So I do think that a lot of people doing anti-racism are running their own cultural scripts of here's how I'm right and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and and they're, they're braiding their trauma, you know, their, their own trauma is braided in with how they approach it. Mm. And do you think that's uh, less helpful? I do think it's less helpful. I mean, I wouldn't gosh, say detrimental. I wouldn't go so far as to say detrimental, but perhaps if less. Somebody's, it's tricky, right? Because, you know, if some maybe you were making lateral moves, like if somebody's suffering harm, but let's say, let's say a black person who's getting really dumped on, on social media and a white person comes along and says, shut up, you idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay. That's not how I want to show up in this work. And at the same time, at least somebody's defending them. <laughs> at least somebody's, you know, trying to protect them. Well, so, I, suppose it, I suppose it depends on the, the reason uh, for which he's being dunked upon. <laughs> sure, mean, but let's say, let's say a black person is like, hooray for this person. Like I, what a lot of times I see a black person post something pro-black and a lot of white people jump in and say, why do you have to do this? Hmm. Why do you have to emphasize this? You're just making everything all about race. That's all you people do, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, so I to think which, it's better to which, than- To which there is some truth. Uh, I mean, there is a certain racial essentialism that kind of is, well, it's almost, it seems to be fundamental to the to the whole project, the anti-racist like oppose? Like how do you oppose something without entrenching it? Uh, yeah, I suppose, but I'm just speaking to the, the, the racial essentialism, like, um, those who would criticize someone for replying to a hypothetical tweet or post in that way, uh, perhaps have good reason for, for doing so. I'm not saying that they're necessarily a racist for- But like what, can you give me an example? Oh, I'm working off of your hypothetical example. Well, what, no, I see, can you give me uh, an example of a good reason? I'm saying a good reason for uh, referencing, or I should say, uh, finding disagreeable the race, the racial essentialism that always seems to be exuded in those sorts of hypothetical scenarios. And again, so, I know we're now we're kind of getting into a little bit of a confused area because we're talking about a, a hypothetical comment. Well, but let I'm, me see I'm, if I let me see if I can offer some clarity here. Please. Um, I I see this question about you know racial essentialism as akin to the question that you posed earlier about, well, isn't it true? Aren't we all one? Don't we want to bring these spiritual ideals in? Yes, and depends on the context, right? Is it being used to bypass something vitally important or is it being used in the moment where it can actually bring us together in the service of greater good? Mm. So similarly, and this is where it gets tricky because people look at, at sort of language tropes and memes and phrases and things as if they have some kind of absolute value as opposed to looking at them in the context in which they're being used for the particular impact that they have in that context, which can be vastly different from context to context. For example, um, if a black person is posting something that's pro-black and that's celebratory, they have in fact created a black space, right? And since the world is largely composed of white spaces, meaning where white people can move freely about and not be targeted and so on. Um, but what's interesting is that in social media, somebody can create a black space that's sort of like a fishbowl that white people have access to. And we're not accustomed to that. We're Again, not accustomed. I'll just, I'll just note, I mean, you're, mentioned, you're talking about the world. I mean, there are three billion people in China. I mean, there, there, we're our. Yes, population. Thank you, thank you. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the United States. Okay, I know I keep neglecting that. that well, no, uh, that's good. Proviso that's that you made earlier, but clear, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about a world in which we're we're freely moving in all white spaces, 
I'm not so sure. <laughs> I well, mean, spaces where not they don't they're not necessarily all white, but there's spaces where white people are privileged to be able to, for example, I can walk around a store and the security guard is gonna leave me alone because I don't look like someone in their mind who's going to steal anything. Well the same is not you, true of my you, black friend. Right. Well well, let's say you're I mean you're in Oakland or close to San Francisco, which has been uh, struggling with a massive um, uptick in, in criminal activity. Would you mm -hmm. consider it racist if, and I've seen videos like this, um, let's say a, a young black man with a ski mask goes into a Walgreens uh, on his bicycle uh, next to you. You're, walking. Talking about, you're talking about racial profiling? Uh, yeah. Well, would you think it's unjust of a, of a security guard or police officer to attend to him more than to you? I don't know. I really don't know. So if you were a security guard and you saw those two options in front of you as people on whom you should just keep your eye a little bit more closely. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm less interested in these kinds of hypothetical examples than in finishing the, the, the thread that we were on. Oh no, that's fine. Get back to that? Of course, I only bring it up because you you mentioned the fact that you were, you were walking around uh, white, generally white spaces in which you felt very comfortable and uh, a black friend. White of privilege spaces. Yeah. And a black friend wouldn't have the same, right. but I'm not talking about, so that's a, why I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking right. about a black friend dressed exactly the same as me carrying the same kind of pouch or bag or whatever, um, who would be treated differently. And that's statistics bear that out as well as the fact that when people apply for jobs, identical resumes were given to recruiters and they passed over quote unquote, ethnic sounding names in favor of the white names that had the same credentials. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I, I don't, uh, I don't disagree with those, with those studies. Uh, certainly not the second one, but the first one, it, uh, that's, that's one on which I would, I'd be curious to see more data. That's, that's an, yeah. more I, I encourage you to, to, to pursue it. Mm. Um, so back to the question about the racial essentialism. Um, so there's a book <laughs> called something along the lines of why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Why do all the black kids always sit together in the cafeteria? And that's something that, you know, people who do this kind of work have gotten asked in the past. And, you know, fast forward, cut to the chase. Um, what nobody notices is that white kids also always sit together in the cafeteria. So that if a black person, say on LinkedIn, posts something like, for example, Emmanuel Acho posted that he wore this, this pinstripe suit to the Emmys with the names of all the people who have been killed by the police. And so, of course, um, many, a number of white men, nine times out of 10, they're, they're men. So why do you, why do you have to emphasize this? You know, blue lives matter too. What about, what about, what about, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know of that example. It'd be interesting to know, though, um, those names with which he adorned his suit, uh, the circumstances under which they were, they were killed by the police, of course, that's often overlooked. And I'm no, not, the fact I'm that not, that's, and I'm know, not defending um, unlawful police behavior toward, toward blacks, nor toward whites, nor toward anyone. Um, well, but to, to I mean, I, this is a, a digression, but I'm assuming on his suit was probably the name uh, Michael Brown and uh, among others who's uh, death at this point seems to be less uh, controversial after the you know, federal investigations and state investigations led by um, Ellison and, and others. Well, you know, Daniel is my friend, as to go back to Cleo again, uh, I'll quote him. He says, there are no accidental patterns. If it's a pattern, it's not an accident. If it's an accident, it's not a pattern. Yeah, but you have to look at individual cases. Well, the fact that Emmanuel Acho was able to fill his entire suit with the names of Black people killed by police and that Black people are statistically disproportionately killed by police, actually people of Indigenous descent are even more so, um, to me, it makes me horrified and, and deeply sad and wanting to do something about it. Oh, certainly. I, the, the loss of life, needlessly, is to me a, a great travesty. But again, you the pattern idea is a bit peculiar when you're looking at police interactions, you have to, you have to look very uh, soberly at whether or not these individuals 
again by whom by whose name his uh, his his suit is ornamented uh, were they actively engaged in criminal activity yeah a police killing of a black individual well, Brianna Taylor was asleep uh, that's a, um, and she was Orlando Castile was in... a, well again not to push not to get into these the Castile case is a, is a is that was a clearer case but the Brianna Taylor one is is much more complex and again we don't have to get into every single case I think that would be um, a little bit uh, a tedious but the but Brianna back to Taylor... the topic you asked you know the the um the 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 question of essentialism. Um, you know, white people, <laughs> we're, we're going around being essentially white all the time. Um, and so when a black person focuses on black issues in a space that white people pre presume is going to privilege their comfort, often it rattles them. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 no, I, t I take your point. I get that. Um, for me personally, I'll, I'll tell you that um, to me, my, my whiteness isn't, isn't my essence. And again, you'll I understand why you basically your counterpoint, and I get that. I take that. Um, to me, it's it's an accidental quality. The same can be said of the fact that I have brown hair and blue eyes, and uh, am relatively uh, challenged vertically. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, I don't know. That's unfortunate. Why is that yeah. unfortunate? Ah, uh, no, a little height would be nice. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Well, yeah. so I mean, that's to me. But, but to me, so so Go just ahead. to finish my thought. Um, uh, these are all accidental qualities, right? They don't get at the at the spirit, at the soul, at the at the platonic form of of what I am. That's a human being, and uh, more than I used to, a human being, or more, I think this more than I used to, a human being crafted in a certain image. And I think uh, holding to that idea, even if it's difficult to carry out, even if it only gets to the anti-penultimate stage of the hierarchy. <laughs> Um, I think without causing as much contention, I think we could get to as uh, harmonious an end. Again, I could be wrong. And obviously, uh, your, I wouldn't call it agenda, your field, I mean, your, your practice uh, has a different approach. Uh, but I think Is we're it? all... Are you sure? It seems to be the case. Um, again, I'm stopping at that anti-penultimate step, uh, step along the ladder. I'm curious what what you see my approach as being and what how you gathered that. I'm really I'm really quite curious. Uh, no, I'm just uh, referring to the fact that you have a few more steps above that at which I'm saying I'm stopping. Mm -hmm. Well, say so. This thing you were saying about kind of having this human essence beyond race. Am I getting that correctly? This roughly soul, if you will, I I'm all about that. That's what I want to recover. Mm. That's what I think white supremacy mythology has taken away from us. I see. I see. Hmm. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's a good place at which to, conclude and and i think it's a a hopeful place and a constructive place because um, i think the end in some ways is shared just based on what you're saying and, and based on what i'm thinking and, and how i'm yeah. perceiving what you're saying um and, and I, there's a lot of ways to get there there are a lot of ways to get there and i don't pretend to know what's right for everyone um mm. just doing what i can over here yeah yeah and i think you're doing it uh, admirably so, so I, again, I have to extend to you my, my gratitude um, for, for spending a little bit of time and talking with me. And of course, I will, I will link all of your information in the description. And I'll urge all my listeners to uh, visit your website, Evolutionary Workplace. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps subscribe to any newsletters or or contact fora that you have available on that website is mm -hmm, there yeah, any they can scroll down to do that yeah of course and is there any other site of which you make frequent use or social media that uh that you want promoted you know, i started a tiktok channel called skin in the game and i, Ooh, I need to how, um that's audacious <laughs> the tiktok <laughs> has your son been uh, assisting you with that no he um 
He likes to keep his distance from me on social media. Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah. Who can blame a, a son for wanting to do that to my? I would yeah. do the same to my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So you thank can be you. found. So you can be found on TikTok. Skin in the game. Skin in the game on TikTok. Excellent. In underscore in underscore the underscore game. I see. I see. With some underscores sprinkled in. Skin in the right. game. I'll be sure to visit it. Uh, and like it. And again, uh, Jill, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I think this was constructive and I learned a lot uh, about this uh, anti-racism approach. I'm so glad. It was really lovely to speak with you too. And I have to go to the gym. You have to go to the gym, you say? The the dictionary. Oh, the dictionary. (laughs) My apologies. Yes, yes. I think we bandied about some very interesting words uh, over which our, our listeners will be We'll be pondering for the next few days. So, so again, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, um, and best of luck out there in California. Hopefully, the weather is nice. Yes, I hope it holds. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Yeah. Take care of over All there right. in Naples. All right. Be well. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye. Bye bye. Shout, 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 shout,